In this episode of A Voice for the Kids podcast, Professor Marcy Hamilton, founder and CEO of Child USA, delivers the keynote speech at the Brooklyn Women's Bar Association to celebrate Women's History Month. Professor Hamilton fondly recounts her experience as law clerk to the Honorable Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Tune in to hear Brooklyn Women's Bar Association President Natoya McGee and attorney Victoria Surigano ask Marcy about the fun, challenging, and rewarding experience working alongside the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. And first, I will introduce our guest uh, speaker, Marcy A. Hamilton. She is the founder, CEO, and legal director of Child USA, a nonprofit academic think tank dedicated to interdisciplinary, evidence based research to improve laws and public policy to end child abuse and neglect. She's also the Fells Institute of Government Professor of Practice and a resident senior fellow in the Program for Research on Religion at the University of Pennsylvania. Before moving to Penn, Professor Hamilton held the Paul R. Verkyle Chair in Public Law at Benjamin Cardozo School of Law, Yeshiva University. She has filed countless pro bono amicus briefs for the protection of children at the United States Supreme Court and state Supreme Courts. She's the co-author of Children and the Law and the author of God versus the Gavel, The Perils of Extreme Religious Liberty, which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. She's represented numerous cities, neighborhoods, and individuals dealing with church state issues. She's also frequently quote, quoted in the national media on child sex abuse, statutes of limitations issues, and constitutional and First Amendment issues. She has been honored with numerous awards, to name a few, in 2019, the Distinguished Daughters Award by Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolfe. In 2018, the Lewis H. Pollock Award for Public Service by the University of Pennsylvania Law School. In 2015, the annual Religion, Religious Liberty Award. Uh, in 2014, free, the Free Thought Heroin Award, uh, to name a few. And, and she was selected as the Pennsylvania Woman of the Year Award um, in 2012. Professor Hamilton holds a bachelor's degree Summa cum laude from Vanderbilt University, two master's degrees from Pennsylvania State University, and a JD magna cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. She clerked for Judge Edward R. Becker of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit and, as we've heard, for the United States Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, first woman to serve on the Supreme Court. And Engaging her in discussion this evening is Ms. Victoria Saragano, a member of the Brooklyn Women's Bar Association on the Women's History Month uh, Committee, as well as the Membership Committee. She's an associate at Schwartz Slatkus Reich Greenberg Atlas LLP, where she practices commercial and real estate litigation. She's an experienced litigator whose practice focuses on representing clients in a wide array of real estate disputes for commercial properties, as well as residential cooperatives and condominiums. She earned her undergraduate degree from SUNY Binghamton University and her law degree from Benjamin Cardozo School of Law. Victoria. All right, thank you so much for the introduction. Uh, Professor Hamilton, it's hard to, to top your bio, I have to say. <laughs> Don't need. <laughs> 
Well, so thank you so much again for agreeing to, to speak with us here today. Um, so before diving into your experience clerking um, for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court, I know we have lawyers watching, but we also have some non-lawyers watching. Do you think before we dive in, you can kind of give an overview of what types of cases the Supreme Court hears, what their jurisdictions over a number of cases, so that way our audience can have more context of the significance of, of your clerkship. <laughs> sure, sure. So thank you so much for inviting me tonight. This is really an honor. Uh, and I'm delighted because I'm thinking that there are students out there like yourself uh, from when I was a law professor at Cardozo, and I'm always delighted to run into you. So, um, so the Supreme Court. So it, it's interesting because the Supreme Court at one time had a type of jurisdiction where if, if you took a case all the way up through the Court of Appeals and went to the Supreme Court, the, the odds weren't terrible that you would get the court to hear it. Uh, and in that era, they would take about 160 cases. When I was clerking 1989 to 1990, they were taking about 130 cases a year. Now they're down to 75. And uh, they take the cases that are the most important cases in the United States and they're being appealed from the lower courts. So the courts of appeals are being appealed by the state Supreme Courts. Uh, and so long as there's a federal issue, that's, uh, that's what we would hear. Wonderful. And so federal issues can also concern the constitution, right? Always, yes. Okay. <laughs> so um, I wanna just take a step back and discuss um, Justice O'Connor's experience in law school, including her experience um, searching for employment after graduation. I understand she graduated third in her class at Stanford Law School, that she graduated in two years instead of three years, which is a momentous task, and also um, was on the law review at Stanford. But from what I know is that she had a hard time finding a paying job after graduation. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, she applied in, to, in numerous places. It, 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 there's nothing that Justice O'Connor is, if not dogged. And she was going to find a legal job. And she was offered a legal job, but it was a legal secretary's job. Uh, she could not get an offer for a real lawyer's position um, despite graduating that high in her class, everybody respected her and her brain, but too bad. Uh, so she basically just pivoted and said, okay, fine, I'll have to find some other something else to do, and really ended up in um, the JAG Corps. Uh, wow. Yeah, and she and her husband uh, worked in the JAG Corps, and it was, she always would say, great training. That's great. And so, I mean, it's possibly obvious here, but just for our audience, um, it wasn't entirely common in the 1950s when Justice O'Connor graduated law school for there to be women with law degrees, right? No, no, it, it was uncommon. It was even more uncommon that if you got the degree, then you expected to do something with it. Um, right. I, don't, I don't know what anybody does with a law degree without, you know, practicing, but um it just wasn't expected. She was really supposed to go home and have children and support her husband. It was a very successful lawyer in Arizona. And, you know, that was her assigned job. But, you know, this is a woman that grew up on a ranch. Okay. Um, she was, and if anybody who has not read 
Lazy B, her her story of her childhood on a ranch, it's it's worth reading because she didn't have the kind of childhood most girls in America have. Um, she was around horses and and all the and the cowboys that were on the ranch and the ranch hands and. Um, she just, uh, she didn't really listen to what other people thought she was supposed to do. I was going to ask, so if, did you ever have an occasion to speak with her during your clerkship or afterwards about what was going through her mind at the time? I, I wasn't hired because I was a woman, like, and, and how oh, was that yeah. for her? Yeah, I mean, she wasn't hired by Gibson Dunn. Uh, and then at their one of their big celebrations, she was their featured speaker. Uh, and she said, you know, it's, it's nice for you to ask me to give this speech. But, you know, I want to tell you, you wouldn't even hire me out of law school. So, no, she, she's, never forgot, she's never forgotten that. And she wouldn't. Did you know what, if any, motivation she had to continue working? You mentioned she had upbringing in the ranch at, at a ranch, but... Um... What was kind of her frame of thought? Was she someone who was easily, um, would just like lay down if someone knocked her over? Like what was her kind of mindset? The opposite. Okay. Um, but, but, you know, what she did do, um, and she had some thoughts about this for her clerks. She took time off to have her children. She did. Um, and uh, so there was a time in her life when she was mommy um, without being a lawyer. And, um, and she was one of the most family oriented people I've ever worked with. And so, I mean, I'll never forget, uh, at the end of my clerkship, we're talking and I, and I'm, and she's saying, so what, you know, how, how are things going to shape up? I'm like, well, we're going to pick up a puppy and see if we can handle maybe a child in the future. And she looked at me and she said, you know, once you have a child, it never ends. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, okay. But, uh, always close to her kids. That's great. And so that obviously didn't stop her from being appointed by President Reagan in 1981 to the Supreme Court. And what I find really fascinating, and maybe especially in, in, in um, current events and the like, she was unanimously approved by the Senate, which is so hard to imagine these days any Supreme Court nominee being unanimously approved. Yeah. And that's fantastic. Well, you know, she fit all the checkoffs, right? So mm -hmm. she was a mother. She was married to a very prominent man. She was um, athletic and gregarious uh, and smart, and she had a great resume. I mean, she had all <laughs> the boxes ticked uh, for Reagan to be the first one to nominate a woman. And so what I find interesting, too, is that within her first year of appointment, she actually um, penned the majority decision in Mississippi versus Hogan in 1982, where she was joined by Justice Thurgood Marshall, in her opinion. And that was a gender discrimination case, right? Yeah. Could you yep. tell us a little bit more about that case? Well, it really meant a lot to her. Uh, and, uh, you know, the question was whether or not there would be, what would be the level of protection for women from discrimination uh, at the level of higher education? And, you know, her answer was, you can't discriminate against women. I mean, it, it really, the way that she thought about, thinks about things is very um, fact-based. Mm -hmm. And in that case, she looked at it 
And she said, I'm looking at the way in which both genders are being treated. It's different and you shouldn't be doing that. Um, and so it was not, she was never a, uh, a theoretician in the law. Uh, instead, she was much more interested in the practical application and probably had the most common sense of anybody I've ever met. That's fantastic. And what, and what I found most interesting about Mississippi versus Hogan was that that was a male applicant yeah. for um, a nursing school that was traditionally all female. And he had all the qualifications. He had everything he needed to get accepted, except he wasn't a woman. And so interesting to see that the law develops for gender discrimination based in part on discrimination against men as well. Right. Well, I mean, and, and it's kind of funny knowing Justice O'Connor because, you know, her attitude in that kind of a situation was bring him on. Right. right? There you, go. you know, I, that won't that won't affect my success. And so what's what's your big problem? But she saw things in a, in a very clear eyed way. And if she saw something that she thought was unfair, she would just find a way to explain that. And that's really what that opinion's about. Child USA invites you to our first film screening of 2021, Silent No More. Silent No More is a stunning documentary about two women, Sarah Klein and Dr. Liz Goldman, whose lives were altered by the abuse they endured from male coaches during their youth. Join us on April 8th for a live viewing of Silent No More, followed by a panel discussion and Q&A with Professor Marcy Hamilton, Sarah Klein, Dr. Liz Goldman, correspondent Armand Katyan, and producer Adam Berger. Register today for free at childusa.org. Donations are appreciated, but not required to register. As always, Child USA thanks you for your support. Great. So I want to talk about um, your clerkship with Justice O'Connor. Do you kind of talk about, I mean, I can't imagine, it's hard enough applying to like law firms after or during law school, but applying to the Supreme Court of the United States, can you tell us what that process was like? Yeah, so in that era, you applied uh, your second, at the end of your second year of law school. So, you know, I, who, did, who knew what kind of lawyer I was going to be, including me? But um, the, so the applicants, you, you apply to the justices. I had support from the University of Pennsylvania Law School, which I was very appreciative of, especially uh, Professor Gary Francione, and, who had clerked for her. Oh, wow, um, okay. And so, but, you know, it was made clear to me by everybody that this is, this is a shot in the dark. And I didn't even understand what I was applying for. So <laughs> if it happened, I figured I would just find out. Uh, out of the blue, I get a call that I, they would like me to come in and interview with Justice O'Connor. And so, um, and I think it's good not to know what you're doing. So, um, but, you know, I prepared somewhat, but um, you want to psych yourself out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, basically, I I went that day, and the, the horror of that was that it was pouring rain. I could not find a cab. Um, I ended up having to walk part of the way from the train station to the Supreme Court. I looked like a completely drowned rat by the time I got there, and um, and I immediately liked her. My mother's from Wyoming. My family's from Wyoming. I like Western Western women really. I, I just so I, I immediately liked her, but 
I would look like a drowned rat and she didn't look right. She okay. didn't, she did not look happy. And so by the end of the interview, I was certain I would never get the clerkship. She was going to associate me with someone who shows up completely, can't even figure out how to get to the Supreme Court dry and, um, and went home. And then the next day in the paper, it turned out she was having an appendicitis attack. So then I knew I would never get the clerkship because she would associate me with extreme pain. So, you know, um, I waited. I thought maybe I'd, maybe I'd get some other interviews from other justices. But before that happened, I got a call and she was offering me the clerkship. And wow. to this day, I think that's just a miraculous event. I, I mean, I can't say I've had a similar experience, but my <laughs> goodness, that is... Um, well, so what I find really interesting, and I want to get into your your day-to-day -day as a clerk there, but something that you and I had actually talked about uh, last week when we were preparing for this event, just to kind of like um, make Justice O'Connor sound like more of a human, like can you, can you talk about, because I see her in my head as like a huge celebrity in the legal world. And right. like, I wouldn't be able to say two words if, if I met her in person. But um, you mentioned doing group exercise classes with her okay. during your clerkship. Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> so so she, she frequently hired two women, two men. Mm -hmm. um, she liked to, you know, split it up. But um, she had a morning exercise class because she wanted to exercise and she hired someone to come into the into the courthouse and any women in the courthouse were welcome to come secretaries clerks whatever but one of her clerks has to go wow. uh, and my fellow female clerk was not going uh, my two male clerks were not going um, and I thought it sounded great to go to exercise every morning um, and so I did uh, and uh, I loved it uh, I loved it except that you'd have this hour of kind of calisthenics, um, yoga, uh, which was great. And then you'd be done. And within five minutes, she'd be back in chambers and I would be just beginning to get dressed for the day, which that I can't do in five minutes. And so I always felt like I was starting late every morning. And, mm -hmm. and of course my other clerks had been there for hours you know, well, nice of you to show up, Marcy. And I'm like, yeah, I'm the one going to exercise class, folks. Not so it was uh, it was great, but it was stressful. Well, so talking about things that were great and stressful at the same time, what was your work schedule and like workload like as a clerk? Uh, with that many cases, I took two days off. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't really take all of either day, but I took Christmas Day and Easter Day. Um, wow. I worked every single other day of the year. And so what did your work uh, entail? So Justice O'Connor would have us uh, read the briefs for the oral arguments. We would write up full-blown um, bench memos. Mm -hmm. And they had to have the history and, and just our analysis and what we recommended. We'd have to be ready to defend it in a debate, a debate discussion with the clerks. Um, you know, she's famous for before the Saturday before every sitting, she, you would come into the chambers and she would make you lunch. Um, and she would always make you Southwest something. Um, and, 
<laughs> it was always spicier than I could ever handle, but I ate. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you were, it was a lot, a lot of work. And then if one of your cases, the, we got the opinion, she would have the clerk draft it. Mm-hmm. She would then edit it extensively. And then, so you go back and forth. Yeah, and so during your clerkship, um, there was a, a pretty significant decision that came down. That was at um, Hodgson versus Minnesota in 1990. Yeah. Can you talk about that case a little bit more? So this is the one case where Justice O'Connor found a regulation of abortion unconstitutional, and it was it involved two parent permission in order to get an abortion. Uh, And she just drew the line. And Mm -hmm. this was not acceptable because it was very clear from what we were hearing that if you had two parent requirement of approval for the abortion and you were in an abusive home, this could be devastating, um, if not deadly. And so um, so I was thrilled uh, that she was willing to go that way uh, and uh, was honored to be able to work on that case. And so something we had discussed was that um, Justice O'Connor was commonly known as the swing vote. And um, just talking about that a little bit more, how were the, how did the justices talk with each other? Was it akin to like politics where there was ever a discussion like, oh, what do you think about this or this or that? I mean, so what was that process like and communication between chambers? So it's really the quietest building in all of Washington, D.C. Uh, they, they honestly, there's, it's a very regimented set of relationships. They do not talk about cases um, just oh, okay. for fun. Um, and uh, so they, they would have oral argument. They would not discuss the cases during the week. And then on Friday, they'd have conference. And in conference, no clerk, no secretary, just the justices. Wow. Uh, So you would only find out what was happening in a case after your justice came back to your chamber and told you that this was the vote or this is how it was being lined up. Now, you know, Justice Brennan was a genius at getting majorities. Um, That really was one of his skills. And uh, so we would see him once in a while wander in um, to see Sandra and, uh, they would chat and they would find some common ground at times. Um, but you really didn't see the other justices very often. And then, uh, did the clerks see each other? Did you have like intramural yeah. leagues and stuff like that? What, what was that like? Yeah. Well, we would see each other at lunch. Um, of course we saw each other all day in the building. Um, now, the, in my era was kind of the beginning. It wasn't the very beginning, but it was part of the early years of what had become called the cabal. And okay. so conservative clerks, largely male, would meet to discuss conservative cases and how they wanted them to go. Oh. Um, and they would try to orchestrate between chambers. Our chambers was very frustrating to them because... Uh, they looked at Justice O'Connor as a conservative, and she looked at herself as an independent person who would make okay. up her mind and had no interest in being told what to decide. So, um, so there, there was some machinations, and there was a lot of attempts to try to get out of us, um, you know, how Justice O'Connor was thinking, and mm. we just didn't talk like that. We, we just didn't rat, rat her out. She was going to make her own decision. Mm-hmm. She would tell them what she was going to decide. 
Hi, my name is Dawn, and I'm from Chicago, Illinois. I'm a survivor of child sex abuse and a community ambassador for Child USA. I want to encourage you to become a community ambassador too. Ambassadors across the country connect local communities to Child USA by publicizing Child USA's film series and organizing local viewing events. A little of your time will make a big difference in the lives of millions of children. Contact info at childusa.org today to sign up. And so we spoke last week about one of your favorite memories clerking for her. And what I enjoyed most about this memory, and I would love for you to share, is learning how to practice in a profession, not just in a professional way, but also within your own colleagues. You had mentioned that you had drafted, I guess, the beginning of an opinion. And uh, I think your words were, you, you ripped into in this draft a co-justice who had taken shots at Justice O'Connor in yeah. another opinion. And you guys had a very fascinating conversation after that. Can, can you tell the audience about that a little bit? Yeah. So, and I, and since he's gone, I, it, it was Justice Scalia. And so, um, so, so I had written what I thought were these, you know, great lines taking him apart for being mean to her in a previous opinion. And I knew she was looking at the draft and her, it was her office and the secretaries in our offices. And I hear Marcy. And I'm, and, and when you hear that, you walk, over and I said yes and uh, she said we don't talk like this we don't write like this we don't talk like this and I knew what it was but I said but you mean that the important part about Justice Scalia and she said yes and that was and she said it's out and it already had been redlined and I I I I tried uh, I said, well, you know, he might deserve it. She said, that's not professional. We are professional. We don't talk like that in print. And we don't talk like that. In, in, and it's not like I had any swear words. Oh, I, was, no. I, I mean, I was quoting him. So, um, but it was a great lesson It was, that you don't have to let your, you don't have to fire a cannon on every issue. And uh, she's the most professional person I ever met, honestly. Her professionalism is just remarkable. Well, it seems like a common theme, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a common theme of, of her mentorship with you and also just mentoring others is she, she seemed to have like a rise above attitude where oh. if someone made a slight at her, she would turn the other cheek and she would continue persevering. Did, did you find that to be an experience that you had with her? Oh. Oh, absolutely. And then there, there's, there's no, um, there's no whining. Uh, and so, you know, if, if, if you stumbled or somebody blocked you from doing something and you wanted to come in and, and you're going to tell her, you know, all the terror and she just get over the whining and get back out there. Uh, and that was really her attitude toward life. She just, you know, this is a woman that picked up golf as an adult played by herself until she was good and then played scratch golf with people. Right. I mean, so such discipline, such incredible discipline always. And you just knew that you better act like a grown up around her too. Is that something that you yourself emulate in your career post clerkship? What is that? Is that something that you've learned and incorporated into your own mentoring style? 
I, I have. Um, I mean, it really is important not to burn bridges. Having said that, for those who know me, um, you know, that there does come a point in which sometimes you just have to take someone down for doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. They're hurting the vulnerable in my book. And, um, and toward, uh, you know, in the last 10 years, I would say several times, she said to me that she's admired my willingness to do that. She wow. would have done that. Um, and I thought that was very sweet of her to say to me, because I know she would have handled it much more specifically than I did. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it just wasn't her style. She just wasn't going to do that. What, what I found interesting, and so your clerkship ended in 1990, but then seven years later in 1997, you argued in front of the Supreme Court in Bernie versus Flores, and you were successful in your argument. Um, and I listened to your oral argument last night, actually. So, <laughs> and what, what I mentioned earlier, I've never heard so many laughs during an oral argument. Like you had the judges and stitches, and I can't imagine many people have that experience. But what I found most interesting, or one of the most interesting things, was in this 6 3 decision in your favor, um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the second woman appointed to the Supreme Court, agreed with you and joined in the majority. Yeah. But Justice O'Connor dissented <laughs> and disagreed with you. So I would love to hear from you what it was like to not only argue in front of the Supreme Court, but also to have Justice O'Connor disagree with you. Well, it's, it's really funny because the, um, I mean, it was 1997 and I, we, we can't even imagine how we communicated then now. In, in 1997, you found out the result of a case by the clerk of the court calling you okay. and telling you the vote. You didn't even have the opinion yet when the when the press starts calling you. And, and so they told me that it was 6-3. And I said, you know, who wrote the majority? Justice Kennedy, uh, mm -hmm. who was in dissent. And they said, Justice O'Connor. I said, that can't be right. They said, it's right. I said, what? So, um, but, but I didn't have anything to read. I couldn't, right, of course. I couldn't I, you know, and I was like, are you sure? But um, I had a feeling that she might do that in, in the, and this is something she and I have talked about for years now. Okay. So in the end, she and I agree completely on where you would draw the line on religious liberty, but we call it different things. And Can you explain what that case was about to give some yeah. context. Because it is a very, um, I would say, sensitive topic because it involves religious liberty and also local statutes, a battle between federal versus states' rights. So can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So so this was the case that challenged the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And it, it, was, it was a very basic case. A, a church in Little Bernie, Texas, uh, wanted to expand. And they wanted to expand by knocking themselves down and putting in a box. And Bernie, Texas said, no, you're in a historic district, so you have to keep some part of your church. And um, you have to keep the part you can see from the street. And mm -hmm. so they went back and forth. They were very close to negotiating a settlement. And the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed, which okay. said that, um, that religious groups and individuals had very strong rights to trump just about any law. And um, 
this was the first case I ever had. I mean, I went straight into clerking out of the Supreme Court. Uh, I mean, straight into teaching out of clerking. And mm -hmm. so I was teaching um, and I got involved in this case because I wrote an article saying RIFRA is unconstitutional. And, um, you know, in the end, my view with respect to religious liberty is that every American owes a duty to obey the laws that apply to everybody else. Right. Uh, unless we can have exemptions that don't hurt other people. Mm -hmm. um, she agreed with that. Um, but in but she wanted to say that you should call it, you should tell the government they have to have a compelling interest. Right. And I said, no, compelling interest is too high. So levels of scrutiny. And it was funny because one time I, I was on a did a panel and I said, Justice O'Connor and I agree about results in many of these cases. And the next, next time I was at the court, she made the point of saying to me, well, we always agree on result, but we don't agree on the test. I said, okay, that's fine, but we agree on the result. So. And listening to the uh, the oral argument last night, I, I don't know, for me, it was to see how she was the first person to ask you questions. Always. And always. she grilled you. I was, I mean, so what was that like? You're orally arguing in front of the highest court in the land and, and your mentor is giving you pushback on every single point. What was that like for you? <laughs> she always was the first one. She was always loaded for bear with the first question for every oral argument. And so you just knew that this was, you know, this was the treatment you were going to get. And I had, uh, I'd had my students at Cardozo count how many words do you get at your opening statement at the yes. Supreme Court on average? Mm -hmm. And we had figured out 75 words was the average before you were cut off. Mm -hmm. So I had written a 75 word statement. I got right to word 75 and she jumped right in. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I mean, just for context for the audience, I was fortunate enough to be a student um, of Professor Hamilton in Constitutional Law 1 and Constitutional Law 2 at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. And it's so interesting that your experience, like you were actually able to not only argue in front of the Supreme Court, but walk away successful and have that opinion published in law books and all over the country. I mean, what has, how has that impacted your career, would you say? Oh, it, it completely changed my life. Uh, I mean, I, I was running Cardozo's copyright program. I was a, I was a fiction writer before I went to law school and I was okay. a copyright expert. And so, um, but I got involved in this case and, you know, probably the, the day that changed my life was the day I got all the amicus briefs from the other side. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I went to the front door and there's this pile and it's all the major organized religions against me, wow. uh, inclu including my own, the Presbyterian Church, and, and by the way, including Yeshiva University. Um, and they're all saying I'm wrong. And, um, and I thought, you know, I, I know, I knew because I clerked not that long ago that I was going to win on federalism. I knew what the justices believed about federalism. That's why, that's why there were so many laughs. They were like gleeful. This was so their- What is federalism for people who may not be familiar with the term? Can you explain what federalism is? 
Federalism means that the, the states have the power. Uh, I mean, it's called states' rights, but states mm-hmm. don't really have rights. They have power. Um, but it, it basically stands for the proposition that the federal government can't take over the states in every way. Um, and so, and I knew that O'Connor and Rehnquist and Kennedy uh, and Scalia, I knew that this was the, where they lived. Um, and so okay. I... I aimed the entire brief at them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and which is why I was very surprised when O'Connor wasn't. So what O'Connor said in dissent is I totally agree on federalism, right. but I disagree on religion. What, so what was your phone call with her like after that? Like, come on. Oh, oh no, no. She, she was thrilled. She was thrilled. She, she loved, you know, she loved all the front page coverage and she loved the pictures of me surrounded by the press. It was you know, she's my she's my law mom and so that. yeah so is it common for clerks to clerks of the supreme court to later argue in front of the supreme court and the very justice they clerked for i mean is that a common thing or is that are you an anomaly it, it happens um but uh i don't think for i'm someone who was hit by lightning first case i ever had goes to the supreme court and we win um, but I haven't been back to the Supreme Court. I've okay. written many amicus briefs. I've written many cert petitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been on some teams, but I have not been at the court itself. Um, and I've done a lot of federal courts of appeals cases. But, um, you know, for someone who's only been there once, it, it, it's uh, I, I really do feel like I was called mm-hmm. to do what I do now, which is um, I to try to protect the vulnerable uh, children from abuse and neglect. Because uh, and what I didn't say earlier is what happened after the case is that I started being contacted by all the people who work on the other side of religion. So all the people on the other side of those, that pile of briefs I got. Okay. And that was the uh, state attorneys general. That was the mayors. That was um, the um, prison associations. Mm-hmm. That was um, all the people that advocate for children uh, against wow. neglect, against um, abuse. And so I got this, this education. I was blessed with this education that nobody else had, which is that religious actors can hurt others if they're right. not regulated. And so that's really how I ended up on a path that, you know, no, no law professor obviously would choose that as your first choice, but it was thrust on me. That's fantastic. And so I had some funny notes that I wanted to bring up from our last conversation. You had mentioned what is the real highest court of the land. Can you can you talk about that? <laughs> so that's where we would exercise. That's the basketball court that Justice White had set up. And honestly, I think Justice O'Connor had an exercise class just to make the point to the guys playing basketball that women could use the, the highest court in the land as well. I love that. <laughs> um, you also mentioned that the judges every once in a while would, would eat lunch together. Was that a, a recurring thing? What was that like? It was pretty common. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, never more than once a week. Uh, and it was kind of a way that Justice O'Connor was trying to get everybody to talk to each other, you know, socially. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but it was much more, and the, ju- the uh, clerks, 
would have lunch. Each group of clerks would have lunch with each of the other justices once during the year. So you would go out with Justice Ran Chief Justice Rehnquist to the Monocle and have a hamburger. You would go with um, Justice Thurgood Marshall to wow. a, a local place. Um, you'd go with Justice What was that like for you? Because I'm sitting here like, oh my God, I'm Justice Thurgood Marshall, I couldn't handle that. <laughs> he had such a great sense of humor. It was just so great. It was hilarious. Wow. I mean, talk about history. Well, so on that topic uh, of first, because Justice Thurgood Marshall was also the first person of color appointed to the Supreme Court. Now, turning back to, to Justice O'Connor, um, she was the first woman appointed. Did she ever discuss what that was like for her? Like that she had to pave her own way. I, I was talking about this with uh, the president, Natoya of the Brooklyn Women's Bar Association. Like how fantastic that you were able to have a mentor that was the first woman Supreme Court justice, but who did she have as a mentor? Who helped guide the way for her when she was the first? So did she discuss that at all with you? Not that. I think what she found um, daunting uh, mm -hmm. was the incredible demand of the world and those in the United States to have her speak to them. Um, the number of invitations that she would get was amazing. Um, but at the same time, I think there was a sense that a woman is more approachable, perhaps, um, because uh, at the beginning of the term, when I was clerking, three cases on abortion were up and um, all of them were possibly going to challenge Roe v. Wade. Right, right. Um, uh, and they all end up getting settled after I wrote all the bench memos, but that's okay. a different issue. Um, but um, she just got piles of mail, piles of mail, as though she was a politician. Um, and not a justice. And I think it was because people thought a woman perhaps would listen. Hmm. Um, but I, I think she felt the burden of having to be the woman representative of the Supreme Court to the world. Right. And what, what's interesting, too, is two years after your clerkship um, in 1992, Planned Parenthood versus Casey came out. And yep. although that, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm misspeaking at all, but my understanding in that 5-4 decision was that although it affirmed Roe v. Wade, which was that landmark ab abortions right case, there were some steps back on what the restrictions were that were um, permitted, uh, yep. a new standard to determine validity of laws restricting abortion. And although Justice O'Connor was in the majority, um, I imagine that must have been a tough decision for her, having all eyes on her about an abortion case. Did she ever discuss that with you? Well, you know, it, it actually was a classic O'Connor um, decision in the sense that she had been saying that uh, it can't be strict scrutiny that you apply to abortion rights. Mm -hmm. um, you don't need strict scrutiny. Um, but on the other hand, you can't overrule Roe v. Wade. Women need this protection. And so the fact that they, you know, it evolved into this concept of undue burden in that case. Right. That, that was a little predictable for her. I, I wasn't really that surprised that she would do that. I was also not surprised that she was one of the three conservatives that said, look, 
um, this decision is not going anywhere. So. So I only have about one or two questions left. So for audience members, if you want to start submitting some questions, I'd be more than happy to address them to Professor Hamilton. We have one or two in the docket right now, but just want to remind everyone, we want to have a Q&A session, so please incorporate any other questions you have. I think um, everyone is muted, so if you can type out the question that you have, I will read it to Professor Hamilton. Okay, so my final questions to you were, post your clerkship, post arguing in front of the Supreme Court, what ultimately were some of the biggest lessons of mentorship that you learned from Justice O'Connor, professionally and personally? Well, you know, I, I was blessed with a clerkship with Judge Becker in the Third Circuit and the clerkship with Justice O'Connor, and they were both fanatical about family. Okay. Family mattered. And you paid attention to family and you didn't ignore family and you fit everything into your schedule. Um, so uh, she really taught me that you better figure out how to have a balanced life and it can't be all law. It can't mm -hmm. be all achievement. Um, so even if you have an opinion due the next day, you have to go see the cherry blossoms. That's a oh, fact. That's wonderful. Um, and even if you have an opinion due the next day, you do have to carve pumpkins and speak to the New York Times about carving pumpkins today. So um, she taught us to be humans, which is probably the best gift she could have given me. Wonderful. And you think she understood the concept though? I feel like there's this the idea of like, women can have it all, but it usually comes at a cost. And is that something that she recognized that sometimes you just spread oh. too thin? Well, now, I mean, she raised her kids. So she wasn't okay. practicing law while she was raising her kids. And so, um, and she thought many of us should do the same thing. Um, so, uh, but you know, it, I frequently at Cardozo would be on the panels about how to do it all. And I would only agree to be on the panel to say, nobody does it all. I've never done it all. <laughs> I have so much help. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, you, you can't do it all. And if you think you do it all, you're just going to be really sad every day because. And then you don't really have it all then. If you don't have your health no. and happiness, so much no. the point. That's right. No way. Can't do it. So we have some Q&A questions. Okay. So, um, uh, Natoya, did you want to read the questions or should I read them? I'll do them. Okay, fine. Um, okay, so one attendee said, I had the pleasure of meeting Justice O'Connor in law school. When asked what her most difficult case, meaning personally or intellectually was, Justice O'Connor thought for a long moment and said, a complex tax case because it was dense and dry and in her words, boring. Yeah. Any chance you're the author or remember that case? <laughs> oh, no, no. Nobody would have ever given me a tax case. No, that, that would not, or ERISA, that would not have been permissible. So I, mean, we, I had co-clerks that would, would have excelled at uh, that kind of a topic, but she and I totally agreed. ERISA and tax, not, not, not so exciting. <laughs> um, so another question is, what do you think Justice O'Connor would think about the politicizing of the court? Oh, she'd be appalled. She is appalled. Um, she um, was so upset by the end of when she was a justice that um, she had now been labeled a liberal. 
And she found this extremely insulting that she she viewed herself as a mainstream Republican who believed in women's rights. I mean, she was the first woman at the Supreme Court. She believed in the right to reproduction. Um, and she just was in shock that suddenly she was on the liberal end of the court and the men, the conservative men on the court were treating her like, you know, she just didn't n- understand the law. So um, I, she just was very passionate about this. You know, after she left the court, mm-hmm. she started an initiative um, called iCivics to educate middle school kids. It's a wonderful program. Um, and every parent should want their children to use the iCivics. It's interactive. Uh, really great stuff. But um, she also worked very hard to try to end judicial elections. Politics, oh. yeah, politics and judiciary, she just didn't think mixed. And it's so interesting that she was at one point perceived as a more liberal justice. And, and, and speaking of more liberal justices, with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, may her memory be a blessing. Um, what was her dynamic like with Justice Ginsburg? As someone, Justice O'Connor, correct me if I'm wrong, was considered a conservative, like she considered herself yeah. to be conservative and Justice Ginsburg was progressive and a liberal. So what was that dynamic like? Well, you know, none of that in that era really mattered that much. What mattered was that their two husbands were really funny guys. Really? So, oh, very funny. And each of them had their own uh, Rolodex, literal Rolodex of jokes. And so when they would go to events together as couples, I, I mean, this is classic. Each of them would pick their the, what they think will be the better joke than the other one would tell. And they'd have kind of, you know, competitive jokes. Uh, so each of these very serious women, um, very serious women, uh, married men who made them laugh. And I always thought that was a great thing. And then you yourself um, went on a few double dates while you were a clerk, right? With some other clerk? Yeah. And yeah. your husband's got along? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we, we worked all the time. So my best friend at the court was Ann Dupree, who was in the um, in Blackman's chambers. And we were working every day, nonstop all day. And so our husbands had to go to the store. They would go to movies together. Um, And my favorite moment was when they said they were in some movie. There was no other movie to see. And they realized it was this romantic movie. And they looked at each other and they sat another chair apart (laughs) in the theater. Because they were just like, what are we doing here? So they bought our pantyhose. Two good husbands. That sounds fantastic. Um, So... I would also, and what uh, President Natoya and I were speaking about um, previously, the work that you're doing now, we would love to hear a little bit more about what your role is, what what is your goal? Uh, Tell us more about that. So about five years ago, I was contacted by the University of Pennsylvania, and they were interested in having me come to be a religion scholar in um, the Fox and the Fells programs. And I was at the point where I had to do something because I was essentially running a nonprofit mm-hmm. on the backs of a lot of law students. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I was running a, a law, a website and I would have five, six and God bless Cardozo never complained at the cost of my having that many RAs at once. But, um, but when, when Penn made that offer and I, I, they agreed that I could start a nonprofit 
uh, to work on the issues I was working on, which was primarily at the time, statute of limitations reform for child sex abuse victims. Um, I was appalled that uh, the victims of child sex abuse were being shut out of court around the United States over 90% of the time. It's just, it's just wrong. And it seemed like a no brainer to me, but I turned into a huge war and I needed a nonprofit. So I went to Penn, we started Child USA five years ago. It's our fifth anniversary. Congratulations. And, um, thank you. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, I knew nothing about nonprofits. I now know a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but the, the most important thing for me is that it turns out that in our society, most people assume or act like children are property. And they were, yeah. they were a hundred years ago. Um, and so we're fighting to put children on the map as persons in that, in, in the 14th amendment context. So oh, wow. that's what we're working on making children, the kind of persons you'd protect instead of the ones you'd like get harmed. So. And so that would be on, so from what I understand in New York, there had been an expansion of the statute of limitations for child uh, sex abuse cases. Can you tell us more about what that development was like? So that's the Child Victims Act. I worked on that for 16 years. Um, started uh, when it was first introduced in, um, in the house and uh, the first press conference that we had, not a single member of the press came. Uh, and this was 18 years ago. And, um, and now we have just an amazing vibrant movement uh, in which yesterday, Kentucky enacted uh, what is a five-year window. And what these windows are, it's a period of time during which victims who were abused in the past okay. and are denied justice now don't have to worry about the statute of limitations. They still have to prove their case they still have to tell the truth, obviously. They have to have corroborating evidence, but they're not blocked by the statute of limitations. And so this is why we now know what we know about institutionalized based yes. sex abuse. So it's uh, it's a really, really exciting movement. And uh, I just, I love everyone who works with us. Uh, anyone who knows a law student, we're always looking for- uh, uh, Make the pitch, make the pitch. <laughs> Interns, interns. <laughs> That's a wonderful cause. And thank you so much for the work that you do. That, I mean, that is benefiting countless numbers of people. And so I, thank you for, for your work. And so I think we um, are running out of time. So Natoya, did, did you have any other questions? I, I don't see anything else. I just want to thank you very much, Professor Hamilton, for joining the Brooklyn Women's Bar Association for joining us for Women's History Month and definitely touching on our theme of paving the way through mentorship this year. We really enjoyed hearing from you about your experiences, your lessons, sharing about uh, Justice O'Connor and definitely about you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I do want to give a <laughs> I do want to give a big shout out to the Women's History Month Committee for all their work on this. Uh, of course, Victoria, our moderator, for doing a great job. Deborah Johnson, Justice Kinonis, Judge Ela Capel, uh, Judge Deerfrom Nichols, and Judith Ahrens. I see them here. So thank you very, very much. And to our co-sponsors, the Brooklyn Bar Association and the National Association of Women Judges. Thank you so much all for joining us. And I see some wonderful comments here. So um, thank you. It was a fantastic program. Thanks. Uh, Thanks so much. All right. Thank, thank you, everyone. Have a great, great night. Thank you. <laughs>
Bye. Take care. Thank you. Bye, Victoria. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, everyone.